So my name is Greg. I'm one of the pastors here at Redemption, and make sure I'm not sitting on any, something like that. And uh, for the, I just want to say, before we get, jump, launch into Hebrews, I just want to say thank you for those of you who reached out to us and prayed for my wife and I. This has been a really interesting three months. Um, I lost my mom on December 30th. Um, we got back from the funeral, and immediately we're on all kinds of care for my father-in-law, who passed uh, two weeks ago, and we had his funeral um, a week ago, um, Saturday and Sunday. So it's been quite a full experience. I know I'm not the only one who suffered loss. I know I shouldn't look at you. Okay. Psalm 116.15 says this. That was unscripted, by the way. Um, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. I don't know if you've ever contemplated that verse, but that's a really strange thing. It sounds like God's cheering for his people to die. That's not what that means at all. It means that there's a God who cares deeply, is near um, to those in that situation, and he, it's nothing flippant that God allows to have happen. He's, he's very much there. Um, my wife um, has spent, she spent quite a bit of time, uh, well, he was here for us for about a month during this year, and then back in Wisconsin, so she has been back there quite a bit, and then uh, me intermittent, but she was able to spend about the last two and a half weeks with him. Let me tell you how she would describe what my father-in-law was like those few days leading up to his passing. She said he was euphoric. I liken it to a five-year-old who knows they've got a birthday party coming on Saturday. That's what he was like. So looking forward to it. Isn't that remarkable? Um, pretty amazing. Pretty amazing. And um, just grateful to God for his love, his his uh, care, his faithfulness. And that's what I want us to cling to today. God's faithfulness, because that stands out over and over in this message. So we're, let's jump into Hebrews. And we're going to be looking at um, Hebrews chapter 8 uh, through nine fourteen. So we've got a big chunk of scripture. And, and uh, Nate wasn't joking when he said 97 minutes. No, he really was. But uh, I'll try to get through this. But here's my question to start us off as we look at Hebrews. So when I study the, the book of Hebrews, and it stands out for me in the New Testament, along with Revelation, that these two, these two books are kind of different, and they're, I kind of get the rest of it. It's kind of pretty much easy to kind of just grab a hold of this stuff, but this is different. And has it been different for you? And so here's my question for you. How closely do you identify with the readers, the original readers who this book was written to. How closely do you identify with them? And I don't mean this like, you know, you named your kids or you have a, a Hebrew name. Like there's Caleb, okay? We've got Sarah. We've got a Rachel or Leah or maybe a David or something like that or a Joshua, right? I don't think we have any Mahler Hale Shazbaz here, do we? I'm not sure. 
go ahead and say it. It's kind of a fun word to say. Go yeah. I practiced it for 24 hours, so I, I got it. So, but this is what I mean. So I'm going to ask everybody to raise their hands, okay? You got 10 fingers, so one is not very much, and 10 is, yeah, just like them. What would you say initially when you think about it? I, how closely you identify with the original readers of this message? Give yourself a 1 to 10. Go ahead. Go ahead. Put your hands up. Okay, and keep it up. We've got a 5. We've got a, we got a 9. Okay, we've got uh, 10. Okay, he's already heard the message. Uh, 4. Okay, okay. All right, 3. All right. Okay, so keep them up because I'm going to add some elements to it to see if this changes while you score it. The Hebrews would have been people who were no longer in their land, which they were drawn to, but not by their choice, the vast majority of them had to leave their land. They would be ethnically a minority. They would be um, religiously a minority. Monotheists and and a polytheistic. Are are we changing our numbers? Okay, keep your hands up. Got to keep your hands up. Okay, are we changing it higher or lower, whatever? So when we... Okay, you can put them down. Thanks very much. I'm going to tell you this. I think we're much more similar to them than we might think. And it's because when we read these types of books and we read all this detail, it is immersed in Old Testament law, Old Covenant, and we don't practice that. I mean, no one's going around, you know, killing turtle doves and things like that and lambs. We just don't do that anymore. And so we're not necessarily drawn back to those type of things. So on the external and the cultural things, we're probably not very similar. However, down deep inside, I think we're a lot like them. And I'll tell you why. Because I would say for all of mankind and for all of history, we have, as people, placed way too much hope in man, way too much hope in things like our own faithfulness and our own goodness, and way too much hope in external things to make us righteous. Does that resonate with you a little bit? We're a lot like them. And so what's going to happen is that we're going to walk through this passage, and I'm going to point out what those three things look like in their context Then I'm going to say, but there's a parallel to how we live those three things as well. And I'm going to ask you to examine, am I placing too much hope in those things and not in Jesus? We got any rock climbers here? Any rock climbers? Rock climbers? Okay. Now, I enjoy rock climbing. I would not be consider myself a a rock climber. It's like Ty. He would say, are you a golfer? And I'd go, I own golf clubs. But that's about it. Uh, so I have climbed before, but I would, you would not want me to be the lead climber, okay? But I have climbed, and one time I did one of those multi-pitch climbs where you actually have to use the protection that's in the rock. So if you're familiar with that, when you climb and you've got to do multi-pitch, there needs to be something you've got to tie the rope off to. You know, you've got a carabiner, and you put it into what's called a thing called protection, and there's something embedded in the rock that's supposed to hold fast, and so you kind of tie yourself off to that. So if you do fall, you don't fall very far. What's going on in this passage is, is the, the, re, the author of Hebrews is saying, are you clinging to that which is perfect? 
and will hold fast, and you can count on Jesus. It's embedded, it's anchored in the rock, and you can be anchored to it. Are you holding on something that's really kind of in crumbling rock that's going to give way? And that's the challenge. Because when life comes at you and you're wondering and you're questioning all that kind of stuff, there's one that will hold fast and then one that will fail you. And that's where we are. So the, big, the main idea this morning is this. Be anchored to Jesus because he will never fail. So with that in mind, let's pray. And I'm going to warn you ahead of time. As we pray, I'm going to ask you to pray, Lord, is, am I holding fast to something other than you? Am I holding fast to something other than Jesus and hoping in that? If so, would you reveal that to me? So let's pray. Father, thanks for the Hebrew people that received this book and the instruction that's given in it. And though we're not real familiar with some of the language and some of what they experienced, God, there's really the parallel for us. And so, God, your word is active. It is... It is effective for examining our hearts and minds. And God, as we dig in today, help me to be faithful to communicate what you say. And God, will your spirit use it to penetrate our hearts and minds? And this is where I'm going to ask you to ask the Lord and his spirit, if there's something that you need to hear, that you need to repent of, that you need to, I'm holding fast to something other than Jesus, would you ask him to reveal it to you? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. Three questions are going to be addressed in this passage that we're looking at today. I'm going to couch them this three different ways of the, the issue that the author is raising that does create a question in our minds. What are we anchored to? The first one is this. Are we anchored to a heavenly mediator or an earthly mediator? Okay, that's kind of like funny language. It's like, what do you mean by that? So obviously, if you look at, down at at chapter 8, verse 6, okay, there is this term mediates. And actually, I th- you know, Pastor Nate last week when he was t- um, preaching on uh, Acts, I'm sorry, um, Hebrews 7, he talks about this covenant, this idea, and that Jesus is a high priest, and the high priests, they are mediators. They are go-betweens between man and God. And you see in verse 6, it says this. It says that... Um, that, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better. So that's why we're using this term mediate because that's probably what you think about. You don't think about having a, a priest, but the reality is that you probably at some times look to something other than Jesus to mediate your relationship with God, to help you get to God. 1 Timothy 2, 5 says this though, and there's one God and there's one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. We already have an anchor. This is Jesus. He has done the work for us on our behalf. So that's where we're going. That's the questions being raised. And the challenge to them specifically is not to go back to the high priest. And the challenge for us is, are you hoping in man? Are you hoping in Jesus? Here we go. Chapter 8, verse 1. Now, the point in what we're saying is this, okay? He's simply going to carry out, carry further this argument that he's made in chapter 7, this idea that don't go back 
to the old, hang on to the new in Jesus. He says, we have such a high priest, that's he's referring to Jesus now, as identified as the high priest that he's speaking of from chapter 7. We have this high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. That's where I kind of get this idea of heavenly versus earthly. A minister in the holy places, in the true tent. Okay, if you see the word tent, that's a translation, directly translation of tent, but it's referring to the tabernacle. If you're familiar with a tabernacle, that would have been the first place of worship established when the nation of Israel came out of Egypt. Moses was given the law, and they established a new way of worshiping, and it was in a portable tent, a tabernacle. And so he's contrasting that, saying, but Jesus, however, is a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. See that contrast between the heavenly and the earthly. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest, speaking of Jesus, our mediator, also have something to offer. What did he offer? What did he offer? He offered himself. Go back, if you would, to the previous chapter, verse 26 through the end of the chapter that helps us understand this context, what he's talking about. He says this, the author says, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those, the earthly priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sin. You see this idea of the, the fallibility of men and high priests? They needed to offer sacrifices, first of all, for themselves. Before they could then offer sacrifices for those of the people. But Jesus, I suppose, but he did this once for all when he offered up, here it is, himself. That's why there's one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. He offered himself. That's why he can hold fast. It's been done once for all for us. For the law points men in there, here it is, weakness as high priests, but the worthy oath when it came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever, anchored to Jesus' perfection. That's where we got to be. That's where we got to remain. That's where we got to hold fast to. So let's go jump back to where we were. We ended at verse 3, now picking up in verse 4, chapter 8, verse 4. But if he, speaking of Jesus, were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since these are priests who offer gifts according to the law. Notice this, they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, the tabernacle, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. The author is kind of painting a picture saying this, everything about the old covenant, everything about the, the tabernacle, all of those things that the high priest would do and the priest would do in offerings is only to point towards something that's coming the perfect that's coming. These are fallible. Now, you're going, I don't have a priest. I mean, I don't, I don't follow a priest. I don't need a priest. I don't have a priest, whatever. But this is where that kind of the parallel comes. Because here's the question. Do you depend 
on a person, a Bible teacher, a pastor, a leader, or in the church to get you to God. Now, there's a role for pastors. We're called to equip the saints for work of ministry. We're supposed to lead and feed, to be a guide. But we're not priests. You have one mediator, Jesus. If you, if you didn't listen to last week's message, I encourage you to go online and, and, and listen. Nate does a great job describing what the, what the role of a priest is. It's a mediator, right? But we already have a mediator, Jesus. And so because of that, there is this encouragement to draw near to, to God through Jesus, not through another person. Yeah, so there's a role for, for people, but you need Jesus. And don't depend on others to take you to God. So uh, a number of years, um, about 20 years, I was kind of invested in youth ministry and did that and I had the opportunity to train other youth leaders. And, and so I became, I became a student of how we do student ministries in the U.S., okay? And, and then the results, and it was rather sobering because as a lot of us who study that discovered something that would happen, a phenomenon in the U.S. church. Student ministries kind of became a career type thing. There'd be full-time guys who would do it all the time. And there's a number of examples of, of youth ministry programs that were very successful in that they had a lot of kids coming from inside the church and from the outside of the church. And oftentimes it was this guy who was just super cool and is very relational and all the kids loved him and he loved them well and he, he would share the gospel with them and they exposed that kind of stuff and it was exciting and then they would graduate from high school and go to college and try to find the same thing and they couldn't find it. And the, in droves, kids were walking away from the church. And what I discovered is that so often these ministries are personality-driven ministries. They were, these kids were holding fast to a guy, a super cool dude with a great program, and somehow it didn't make the jump to hold fast to Jesus. Two implications of that. Because I also find that, that the reality is that the same thing happens in churches, Right? Same thing happens when there's a, a, a strong personality that people fall in love with. And so that's why we're committed to two things here at, at Redemption. Number one is this. Is we decide if we're going to have somebody lead our student ministries, we don't want them to be cool at all. <laughs> I'm just kidding, just kidding. But second thing is this, that we believe in and we try really hard to practice plurality. There is a vacuum when Matt Brown leaves and has left. But if you are here because of Matt, you've placed too much hope in man. Hopefully you're here because of the mission, what we're on, that you've bought into that. And so I think Matt did a great job of sharing the pulpit and trying to help us, all of us, not to connect to him, but connect to Jesus. That's what we want to do. There's a, n- a number of implications here. And number one is this, that man will fail. Think about those Hebrew um, readers. They'd be very familiar with Abraham 
and Moses and David and really connect with them. And they're they're champions of their faith. And Abraham, the guy who twice lied about his wife, said it was my sister to save his own skin and allows her to be taken into another man's house. He was promised by God that, that a nation would grow from him. And he got impatient with God and says, I think I'll just sleep with my wife's handmaiden. Men fail. Moses, murdered an Egyptian, runs away, called by God, leads the people out of Israel. But because of his sin, he's not even allowed to enter the promised land. How about David, a man after God's own heart? Adultery, murder. See, if we're holding too fast to man, I understand they will fail. What I, mean, what, I, what I mean and don't mean by that is this. It's not an excuse for sinful behavior of leaders. It's going to happen. It's not an excuse. There's a standard of righteousness. There's a qualification for leadership we find in the New Testament. And those churches who say you no longer qualify, they're doing the right thing because there's a qualification for that. Second thing is this, and I don't want to dismiss or diminish at all the hurt that people have experienced at the hands of leaders. It's real, I understand, and maybe some of you have been hurt by the church, its leaders in the past. It's probably true. So I, I want to say, hold on to Jesus. Hold on to him. Seek his healing and seek forgiveness and offer him forgiveness. But I also don't want to say don't be committed to a local church. But I do want to ask this question to you. Is Sunday morning the only time you're in the Word? Is Sunday morning the only time you worship? Is Sunday morning the only time you pray? Don't hold fast to those things. Hold fast to Jesus. Second question. Are you anchored to the unconditional promise that Jesus offers or a conditional promise? Let me tell you why I use the word promise. The promise word comes up at least once in here. But more often the term is used is covenant in this next section. Covenant, again, like Nate mentioned last week, is an arrangement or an agreement between two different parties. And it's based upon them following through. And so the old covenant or the old promise was God promises to do this if we do this. And if we fail to do this, God will do this. And the reality is that we know it to be true. Mankind fails, falls short over and over again. Which means this. And the question is, are you holding fast to your faithfulness? Are you counting on your faithfulness, your righteousness, your goodness, or Jesus'? Watch where this goes. Watch where this goes. Here we go. Verse 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as the covenant, the new one, he, that he mediates is better since it's enacted on a better promises. See, here's the idea of the unconditional promise and a conditional promise. I mentioned the conditional promise, but the unconditional promise is this. God says, I'm going to do this no matter what. I'm going to do this. He makes that promise. Four, verse seven, for if the first covenant had been faultless, there had been no occasion to look for a second. 
for he finds fault with them when he says, and now he's going to quote Jeremiah 31, a promise made that God was going to do something back in the Old Testament about how he's going to change things. He says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. Now listen to this. Listen here how many times we read, I will. This is God making a promise. I will. God always follows throughs on his promises. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant, that conditional thing, that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by their hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. They broke their promises. When I asked at the very beginning how much close you identify, when I read that, everyone in this room should go, 10. That's me. That's me. You see, when we recognize this, that that is you, that is me, for they did not continue in my covenant, we fell short, that's when the old covenant, the old promises, me trying to live up and be faithful to what God's called me to be, religion ends and Christianity begins. A hope in Christ and what he has done. And so the rest of that verse ends, and so I show no concern for them, declares the Lord. In other words, the covenant is broken. Verse 10, here we go. Listen to these I wills. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declared the Lord. I will put my law into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of the new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete is growing old and is ready to vanish away. Do you see this unconditional promise and covenant that God has declared. The gospel is expressed in many different ways throughout scripture. All of us like sheep have gone away. Each of us has turned his own way and the Lord laid the iniquity of us all on him. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. All of those things were done not on, based upon our faithfulness and our righteousness because we could not save ourselves. God steps into history, sends his son Jesus, making this unconditional promise, I will do this for you. Praise be to God. For I will be merciful merciful towards their iniquities and I'll remember their sins no more. So what does that look like for us? That parallel. I have four, I think, four don'ts. Here you go, ready for these don'ts? Here we go. Don't believe your relationship with God is anchored to your faithfulness. It's anchored to 
his faithfulness. Yes, there's a balance, um, especially in the book of Hebrews, where we're to examine our hearts. Do we really believe? But it's not based upon our righteousness, our ability to be perfect or to be faithful because we will fall short. It's based upon his. Those who have the Son have life. Those who don't have the Son don't have life. It didn't say those who live out a certain way have life. Do you have the Son? Are you holding fast to him? You have life. Second one. Don't run from God when you sin as if God thinks any differently of you rather than run toward him. That's where you'll find forgiveness and restoration. So you have this tendency, like we sin, we run away from God. That's the exact opposite direction we ought to be running from. But that's based upon thinking that that's going to affect how much God loves me, which leads to the third. Don't ever believe that you, what you do, earns any favor. He's already done it for us. And fourth, don't ever believe you can or you need to do anything to be more loved by God. For God so loved the world that he sent. He sent Jesus before out of his love, not because we've done anything to deserve it. Hold fast to him. Third question raised in this passage. We're going to jump into chapter 9. And it has to do with this idea of internal sanctification. Are you holding fast to that? Or external sanctification. Let me tell you why I'm using the word sanctification here. Okay, so the word sanctification doesn't actually appear in this passage anywhere, but there's really two pieces of sanctification, okay? So hang with me here. Sanctified means to be set apart, okay? And so when we trust in Christ, what has happened is there's been this great exchange. Your sin is placed upon Jesus, and his righteousness is placed upon you so that God the Father sees you holy and blameless. Now, all I have to do is look to your left and right, and you go... That person's holy and blameless? I'm not so sure. So we're positionally holy and blameless, sanctified because of what Christ has done for us on the cross. And then there's a progressive sanctification, that which we become more and more like Jesus, become more and more holy and blameless. Both of those pieces are not done through externals. It's a work of the Spirit in, God's, in, our, in our lives. We need to hold on to that. Um, there's a number of us who are um, regroup leaders who've been doing a journey group in this, this manual. And this is, you can recognize the, the logo here, Christ Community and Commission. And this one's based upon our relationship with Christ. There's three pieces of it. It is worshiping the Father, abiding in Christ, and depending on the, on the Holy Spirit. I'm right now in the middle of, near the end of the, the depending on the Holy Spirit. And I've been struck once again to recognize what the work of the Spirit does in a person's life, not only bringing us to Christ, but also maturing us and how the, the Spirit of God does that work. So let's jump right in. Here we go, chapter 9. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. Okay, so now we're going to launch into this whole tabernacle, um, the whole temple and the worship that takes place and if you're not really familiar with this, you know, spend some time looking at 
these things, these details. It's very complicated, very elaborate. And as a shameless plug for Good Friday coming up this week, we're going to touch on some of these things and how the veil was torn into two and what that really means for us. But here we go. For a tent was prepared, that's the tabernacle, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the, and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Okay, that's the first part. Then behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, the holy of holies. And in that, okay, having a golden altar of incense and a, the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was the gold urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of, gold, of glory overshadowing the mercy seat of things which we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, perform their ritual duties, these kind of these external stuff, but into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, for he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is is not yet open as long as the first section is still standing. If you're trusting in the externals to allow you to be righteous enough to enter God's presence, you're not getting it, he says. According to this, this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. Now, here we go. 11 through 14. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made by hands, that is, not of his, this creation, he answered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the bloods of goats and calves, but the, by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption, thus securing that you would be, as you place your faith in Christ, considered holy and blameless before him, set apart, sanctified. For if the blood of goats and bulls and sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of flood, flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, here we go, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Christ does a work inside of us. He does the work. You can work very hard and read your self-help books and and put in together all this discipline stuff that I want to do, but unless God works in your heart, you're not going to change. What we need is a spirit work in our hearts. Don't rely on that, all that external. I mean, behavior is important, and yes, discipline is important, but what we need is Jesus to do that work in us. Think about this. Three things that Jesus says. Out of a good tree comes good fruit. It's got to start inside. Out of the overflow of the heart, a man speaks. What comes on the outside is from what's going on the inside. Abide in Jesus, and we'll bear much fruit. Connect to Jesus. Connect to Jesus. 
connected Jesus? Are you relying upon those external things? Are you trusting in the work that only Jesus can do in your heart? Driving back from the funeral, um, my middle son was with us, and the story came up of, he's, his name is Brad, so he's named after my wife's brother, Brad, who was killed in an accident at the age of 30. And so the conversation came up about reading someone's journal after they pass. Because um, Sherry's parents read Brad's journal um, when he passed 30 years ago. And it revealed some, some, just some, the work of God in his heart and his mind changing him. And so we had this kind of conversation about, should you read somebody's journal? But it immediately, immediately kind of brought back to mind, I wonder if, if one of you would go into my office and dig through and go, oh, look at this, this journal. Wow, this is really old. Um, and this is when he's like 18 years old. And, and this is what's challenging to me. I read these journals and I go, I'm kind of wrestling with some of the same stuff I w- did all these years. And then I go, but I actually think God's changing me. That maybe I'm not quite as bad as I was then but it's only because of the work of God in my life. I've got to hold fast to him. We need to hold fast to the anchor because Jesus is perfect.